and welcome to episode 5 of Barely a Degree. So yes, here we are once again. Uh, by the time this one airs, you would have, the listeners, you would have heard the travesty that was... Uh, episode 4. Episode 4. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it hasn't been edited yet. But I am looking forward to hearing how that turns out. <laughs> Ouch. I'm glad I'm not the editor anymore. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> the raw footage was three hours long. Three hours and 20 minutes. Three hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> Jesus, wet. And by the end, oh, I can't remember the end of the podcast. It was a drunk one. I think it's only right that uh, the listeners know. Listeners, I, I'm in grieving. I'm a morning, sorry. Morning, I'm, I'm wearing all black. And I think, like <laughs> Queen Victoria, I will wear black until my death. <laughs> the, the fourth member of the podcast, not Luke. It was the guest in the last episode. Jess, the Greyhound, who was always here apart from one episode I think she missed, uh, passed away. Poor lass. So this episode is dedicated to Jess. It the was Jess suicide. Memorial episode. <laughs> it wasn't suicide. It was horrible. It was traumatic. <laughs> but anyway. Anyway. So, yeah. Should we get down to the usual business? Okay, boys. This week's quote, it's not a quote, it's just two words, and it says boob hug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that poor man. So what happened, listen, was it a funeral? Or was it just a normal party? It was just a normal A normal party, party and so it was like, towards the end of the night. Yeah. People were, were giving each other hugs. Me and Dom, I think, were standing just, just behind. We were just standing on the bar. We were just standing on the bar, yeah. There was a, a a large lady and a, a a sort of an older gentleman. Yeah. And the older gentleman went to cuddle the larger lady. It's like a, a sort of see you later, I'm off. So he gave her a cuddle, but and he thought he grabbed her waist, <laughs> but he actually <laughs> grabbed an enormous breast. An enormous, <laughs> low hanging the, bottom. The shock on his face. It is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen. In my life, his face going from like just a smiley, happy goodbye face to <gasps> instant <laughs> shock and disgust with himself. I, I wouldn't say disgust with this. It's just like, oh, what have I done? Just yeah, yeah. But the lady was very cool about it. Yeah, she brushed. She, it probably happens all the time. It probably did. <laughs> she just made made him feel better. I think, which was yeah. which was good of her. It was. It could, if she'd reacted badly, that that could have been a better scene. Well, we reacted badly because we just pissed ourselves laughing. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't... It happened right in front of the bar. One thing it did remind me of, though, is I've never seen a face change from two such dramatic uh, expressions, except when you do the hand thing. You know, you do the, <laughs> but also when my dad and me, my dad and my brother were coming back from a pub one time, and uh, we were just having a bit of you know being lads, just boofing around and that, and then. My brother kind of rugby tackled my dad, which made him fall. And he, I remember he's like face laughing as he fell. And then when it hit the ground, it went from laughing to just dumb. Like he'd been <laughs> like knocked out. It was so funny. But then I was a bit worried for a bit that my dad had been knocked out, but he hadn't. <laughs> and then I put that tipped Luke over someone's like wall and bush. And he had to go all the way up that drive to come out. <laughs> uh. <laughs> For some reason, when you well, when you start telling that story, I thought you were going to tell the stuff which wouldn't have been related. 
But when you were a kid, I think you were going to the match and you saw that fight and the bro going, go on, Carl! <laughs> it was the first. It was coming out of the match, actually. It was on my way home. It was behind, uh, you know, like, if you walk along from the strawberry, behind the, the Eldon Square kind of car park. Yeah. Uh, behind, like, all them pubs. It was there. And there's just two fat fellas landed in the mud. And I just heard this voice from behind me go, go on, Carl! <laughs> I wonder if Carl won. <laughs> I wonder if Carl won. Were they muddy? Did they have toon tops on? They were just, I, oh, I don't really remember if they had toon tops on, but they were just two fat, bald, old men. I wonder if they're both still alive. <laughs> Probably both died that day. <laughs> <laughs> Punched each other at the same time. Dead. <laughs> okay then, shall we get down to the meat? meat and pie, if memory please. serves, this is a suggestion by Craig... Stevenson. Yeah, this is the dark side of Winston Churchill. He's back. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah, follow along from from last series, last series five, uh, fifth episode, where we did the the dark side of the Spartans, carrying on that tradition. Fifth episode, dark side of Winston Churchill. Right. Okay. Oh, is that mm. so? I thought bit of a parallel, nice bit of uh, continuity to the series. So we're going to do that in the third series. Um, well. I'd like to do so. I'd like to do so. Yes. Let's do the ceremonial withdrawing of the notes. It's folded this time instead of scrumpled, which is nice to see. <laughs> Blue pen. Blue pen. Uh, I, I really like this pen I stole it from the club. It's nice, inky, nice, inky pen. Ooh, good ink flow. Good ink flow. Real rich, rich ink flow. I'd describe <laughs> it as. Um, the rich ink flow is always last, 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 the, last the least. Last the least, I know. The, the burn the brightest. <laughs> burn too bright. And this week's notes are brought to you by some note paper, brought to you by the NASUWT. Right, so let's get on into it. Winston Churchill. This isn't going to be a biography of him, so I'm not going to go into much detail about his life, really. His childhood. Do you think anybody listened to it to this point? Press the cancel button right there. <laughs> I'm out. Fifty percent of our audience. I tell you what, I do know is he went to primary school in Brighton. So yeah, nice. there's your biography of him. So uh, let's <laughs> let's go from there. Only thing I'll give out is his date of birth, which was the thirtieth of the eleventh, eighteen seventy four, and he died on the twenty fourth of the first, nineteen sixty five. That's a good long life. That's a old good old life. Good old, good old life. Was that is that ninety well, one? You would have thought yeah. all those cigars would have all that cigar and whiskey, mm. copious amounts. I wish I liked cigars and whiskey because. They look delicious, but taste disgusting. Cigar, well, not cigars, but whiskey is the beverage I'm always a bit jealous of when I see sophisticated older gentlemen quaffing it back. I agree. So, I'm going to give you a little bit of a a little bit of choice here because the way I've done this, it doesn't doesn't necessarily have have to go in any kind of order. Oh, I like this. Like, um, well, no, not really. I thought I was going to say like you know those books. Where you could choose your yeah. adventure books. I used to love them. Do when you I was turn, if they were if the you best. want to turn left, go to page 191. Yeah, yeah. Turn right, go to page 134. Did you ever do that? And then you go went to a page and be like, I don't like this page. I don't like this bit. I'm going back. Oh, especially if you went, you were dead. Like, tough. Nah, going back to where I was. <laughs> Those were bollocks, though. No, I don't think anyone ever completed one of them playing it properly. It's yeah. just like. You get to the, the get to the last boss, and it's like, do you attack him with the, your sword, or use the jewel you found in a cave? 
50 chapters ago. I didn't find the, the crystal in the cave, so I'll just have to attack with my sword. You attack with your sword, you're dead. Start <laughs> again. <laughs> right, so the, the the sections that we can look at, and you can choose the options. order. The option, your options are his often disastrous military decisions, and that involves both World War One and World War Two. His horrible interaction in Ireland, or his horrible involvement with the Irish Civil War, or Irish War of Independence, as I suppose I'd like, like it to be called. The Indian Famine of 1943. His questionable views on race and religion, or his horrible anti-union stances and crushing of the working class. Ugh. Maybe we should go straight in with these horrible views on race. Horrible views on race and religion? Yep. Okay. You know, let's, let's set this off on the right tone. Bigots, you might enjoy this bit. The, um, the Mel Gibson, Hitch. if you're listening, this is for you. <laughs> uh, the the headline, well, the the title of this page is "Racist Imperial Twat." <laughs> um, uh, right, no. So this one's actually actually no, there is quite a bit of information here, uh, and a lot of it is just direct quotes. So basically. Um, he had, as you might have guessed, the two main groups that he had odd views on were the Indians, especially during the 30s. Even Boris Johnson said his uh, views of the Indians were indefensible. Right, okay. So, you and know, that coming that from fucking Boris Bojo. Johnson. And the Jews were also a people he said some questionable things about. I was always a questionable, not entirely bad, but questionable. But I will start with his his view of just race in general. And this is quite well summed up in address an address he gave to the uh, Palestine Royal Commission in 1937, where he said, I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, you might want to say, has come in and taken their place. Oh my god. And <laughs> oh. <wrong> that <laughs> Winsty. Uh, yeah, he, he wholeheartedly believed in the idea of uh, racial hierarchy. Where the white Protestants were at the top, then you had the white Catholics, and then below these you had, for instance, Indians were higher than Africans, but the Chinese were higher than both of them, and so on and so forth. But well, what's the pattern there? Basically, I think just you can say that... so on and so forth. But how do you? Basically, Who invented Africans this kind of bottom. pyramid of um, Africans? It comes were from the, the sort of nineteenth-century pseudoscience of of, of of race theory. This... And this came from England. No, well, it was a it was popular all all around Europe. Uh, Popular with German scientists, well, really? popular within the scientific Obviously. community. Of, it's how basically they justified colonialism. It's how they said yeah. we can go in and take these people land because we are better than them. On a on a on a genetic level, we are better than them. Is this because maybe when this whole kind of colonialism was starting, they see themselves as more developed country, you know, industry and things like that. They say, look, we've got industry, you don't, so that makes us better. The civilized man coming into the land of the savage yeah, so yeah. um so yeah that's that's his that was his broad view uh, particularly 
let's go to India. He hated the Indians above all else, but not until the 30s when Indian independence under Gandhi started becoming very popular. And he absolutely despised Gandhi. He, he often said things like when Gandhi was under arrest and was in a British prison uh, fasting to be released, he was just like, we should just let him die. It'll, it'll rid him of one of the greatest enemies to the empire. And Gandhi, who was a, an above all peaceful man who was fighting, well, not even fighting, he, he was striving for freedom of his people. Yes. And, well, he also thought he was a charlatan. The, he, he constantly put, one of the worst things he did during this time was these were not just like personal beliefs that he held. But he actively tried to destabilize India by ordering that rifts be created between Muslim and Hindu communities. So to try and destabilize any unified effort for a, a uh, unified independent, India. unified India, which would bear fruition with the, with the horrors of, of the partition of India, or of India and Pakistan. So the sort of seeds of that can be traced back to Winston Churchill. Yeah, and previous. I mean, the, horrors. The, horror, the horrors of British colonial rule in India. Um, but yeah, it can it, certainly, some of the blame can certainly be put on him. Um, another it's nice few quotes about him. From him. Uh, from him, sorry, concerning the Indians. I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion. Famine or no famine, Indians will breed like rabbits. And when he was being told that there was a horrible famine going on in India, this was in 1943. His reply was simply, then why hasn't Gandhi died yet? Just like, ooh. <sighs> it's not surprising that he's not very popular in India. Yeah. Strange that they picked that uh, blood, sweat and tears quote for the back of the fiver <laughs> instead of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the final thing he remarked that was horrible about the Indians was during the Second World War, he remarked offhandedly that he wished that Arthur Bomber Harris could send some of his surplus bombers to go and bomb India. As a, as a joke, I'm doing air quotier, air quotier uh, customers, air quotier listeners, as a joke. But the Indians were fighting <laughs> for, for, for us, for, for, for the Allies. Exactly. It was just, he hated the Indians. He was a staunch imperialist who hated the idea that any constituent member of the Empire wanted to secede. Oh my God. What a dick. <laughs> I mean... That's that's pretty much the end. Actually, I forgot to mention his views on Jews. These are much less well documented, and there is a lot of evidence for him supporting Jewish people and saying nice things about them. And he was also supported Zionism to a large extent. Zionism, that's when the it's a homeland for the Jews. So Israel is for the Jewish, basically. That's what Zionism. Not for the Palestinians, though. Not for Palestinians. Uh, but one thing I should point out is, especially during the nineteen twenties, some of the most fervent Zionists in Europe were also anti-Semites. Because they didn't want Jews so, in Europe. So yeah, they wanted they want them to them... leave and find their own. Uh, but basically he just said, you know, the Jews have been dealt a bad hand throughout history, but maybe it's some of it's their fault. Because they don't like to integrate. Kind of very similar to things people say about refugees and immigrants today. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that kind of rounds up me, me horrible racist, racist side of Churchill. Section. The racist part of Britain Churchill. It's a good. It's a good footing to get off on. To, you know, give give a flavour, the bitter pill. Yes. Yeah, so that's that's that done.
<laughs> Sam just cast that aside. A, a logical jump to would be the, the famine of 1943, but... Yeah, let's do it. I'm ac- I accept. Uh, yeah, because that's, that's directly linking in with India, and you'll see how his disregard for the Indians led to horrible, horrible starvation in India. So a little bit of background to this. It wasn't really caused by the British. A lot of people say the British deliberately starved. I should point out, between one and a half million and three million people did die during this famine. And a lot of people do say the British directly or deliberately caused it. They didn't. It was caused by the Japanese. It was caused by the Second World War and the Japanese invading and conquering Burma, which was a British colony to the northeast of India, which used to provide a lot of rice to India. India used to import a lot of rice into it. Specifically, the region of Bengal, which was the worst hit. So, once Japan had conquered this and India could no longer import rice, it soon became evident to the Viceroy, whose man fellow called Viceroy Linlithgow, that there would be food problems for India along the way. So what what year did the Japanese invade Burma? I believe Burma? it was conquered in 1940 or 1941. Right, okay. So the the famine didn't kick in for a couple of years. So The had... famine started to kick in 1942 and then was in full swing in 1943. But the main thing that the main problem was, which the British were responsible for, is that even though the, the Viceroy said this will cause, there is going to be a famine, Churchill and his government still continue to insist that India exported rice and wheat to feed Britain. For the entirety of the famine, they constantly said, you, can, you must keep exporting uh, foodstuffs to us. So, so kind of similar to the old uh, island from the, fir- from the pilot, you know, when the British Empire insisted yes. that they yeah, exported... Nothing, a lot of parallels have, have been drawn with the Irish potato famine and the British government not learning anything in the last 100 years. So, like I say, uh, Viceroy Linlithgow in December had recognised there'd be a famine, asked for 600,000 tonnes of wheat. Uh, the cabinet refused, Churchill refused. In 1943, in January of 1943... Churchill decided to move almost all of the merchant shipping from the Pacific to the Atlantic, once again hindering how much food could be taken to India. And secondly, despite saying that they wanted more and more food to be exported from India, it was being exported, but not to feed Britain. It was largely being exported to stockpile so they could feed the freed Europe. So it wasn't being used, it was being put in storage. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a bit so of a shit move. So, who, who was working the fields in India? Was it poor people? Well, Indian farmers, you know, your traditional... So, so Indian farmers were knowing that there was a famine. Mm-hmm. Surely they would have been suffering in the famine. Especially in 1942, they would have been... Well, the ones that were dying of the famine weren't the ones to do with the farming, to be right. fair. Like, this is one of the problems of blaming entirely the British. Some Indian provinces did simply refuse to uh, transport grain out of their province. Because they were like, well, if we let our grain go out of here, we might suffer famine, and we don't want that. We're going to look after our own people. Right. Because also what you have to remember, India, it's huge. It's massive. And it? it's, not a, it's not an entirely monoculture. You know, people from the very south of India do not have... They will not see themselves as having much in common with, with the people in Mangal, for example. And the second thing I should point out about moving the shipping is, once again, Churchill was warned that this would have a dire effect 
not just on India, but on all of Britain's Southeast Asian holdings, and it did. So where else? It affected, well, affected colonies in Africa, it affected Hong Kong, it affected basically every single British holding in Southeast Asia, maybe bar Australia, because Australia had some food. So uh, by July of 1943, famine is now rampant, throughout India and the Viceroy overruled Churchill's orders and did order exports to be halted so they Good lad. could probably should have done it a bit earlier but we'll let him off yeah he halted exports and once again asked for well he halted exports of rice not wheat uh, but he did ask for half a million tons of uh, wheat in August of that year the cabinet had a meeting and ignored his request. And they also ordered 170,000 tonnes of Australian wheat, which was sailing round India, to bypass it and sail into Europe to once again just add to the stockpiles. So that was 170,000 tonnes that could have fed Indians. A lot. And they were just like, no, no, we need it in Europe. And the horrible thing is, at this time in 1943, the UK had a stockpile of 18.5 million tonnes of food. That's just a stockpile. That's just in storage. So, so this was not being used. This is the highest stockpile of food Britain has ever had. And we were going, no, we can't feed the Indians. Largely because the government didn't give a shit about the Indians. Well, Churchill in particular, as we learned from those quotes earlier on. Yes, and during this time, as I said, with the breeding like rabbits, Churchill blamed the famine on the Indians because he said they breed like rabbits, they can't feed themselves. They also, and this is probably even worse in my opinion, ignored offers of food aid from other countries. They refused them. So, for example, the Burmese freedom fighter Subhas Chandra offered 100,000 tonnes of rice to help the famine victims. Britain turned him down because Subhas Chandra had allied himself with the Japanese. So we saw him as an enemy. As an enemy, and they wouldn't receive food from the enemy. Uh, yeah, so we're like, oh, no, 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 we're not, we're not receiving food from you. And also he was a freedom fighter, so he wouldn't have liked British rule if we won the war. And secondly, we also, oddly enough, turned down food gifts from both Canada and the US. People hearing about the famine and trying to send food aid in you know, little baskets and whatnot, we said, no, we don't want it. It wasn't until November of 1943 when the government finally sent some food. How much did they send? 80,000 tonnes of wheat, which was good. And we also sent 130,000 tonnes of barley, which could feed people but was useless because the Indians didn't farm barley. It did nothing to affect the massively inflated price of wheat. Right, okay. Because it's not a local product. And finally... I'm going to sound like an idiot here. What do you make out of barley? Bread? No. Robinson's barley juice. (laughs) I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to I'm not sure. I know barley. barley. Barley's one of the ingredients that you can put in beer, isn't beer, it? Beer, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a grain. It probably has lots cereal? of uses. Yeah. Is it a cereal? Yeah, it's a cereal grain. Probably has lots of uses. Or you need a bit of milk. Foods slash products you can make from barley are coffee substitutes, beer, whiskey, soups and stews. Uh, so yes, the last thing I've got to say about the famine is it finally came to an end in December when Bengal decided to harvest its entire rice crop and feed its own people with it. Right, okay. Uh, and 
horribly, at which point, after the famine was declared over, Churchill immediately ordered exports to begin again. It's like... Oh, no recovery time, Churchill. Just no sympathy, just we need more food. We need food for the war effort. Three million of you have just died, or maybe three million of you. Well, I don't care. Give more food to our little island 3,000 miles away, please. Ugh. Winsty, Winsty, Winsty. The reason why the Irish particularly hate Winston Churchill. In January of 1919, Winston Churchill became the Secretary of State for War and Air. 11 days after that, 10th of January I should point out, 11 days after that on the 21st of January, the Irish War of Independence officially began. And Churchill's involvement in this is he called for the establishment of what was called the Royal Irish Constabulary Special Reserve, more commonly referred to as the Black and Tans, because that was the colour of their uniforms. Right. These were essentially a paramilitary force recruited from English and Loyalist Irish, well, that's what you say, British, men, off, who were often veterans of the First World War who had lost their jobs, to go over to Ireland and help the... Royal Irish Constabulary, the normal police force of Ireland. But what they basically were, were a horrible terrorist organisation that operated for the English. They did some very, very, very bad things. There was never that many of them, but um, they reached the peak in 1921 when there was 9.500 of them. That's still a full canny force, that, though. Yeah, still 10,000. Imagine today if Britain sent 10,000 men into Ireland. That'd be quite the force. And one of the reasons why their behaviour was so bad is because there was no strict oversight. They were kind of outside the law. Yeah, they were a law unto themselves. And they weren't regulated. So it led to a horrible system of revenge attacks. It was, you know, you do... you The classic, you send one of ours to the hospital, we'll send one of yours to the morgue. And they did that with interest all over Ireland. So they operated throughout Ireland? Well, yeah, because I remember at this time, there was no Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland, all of Ireland was belonged to Britain. And their retaliations were, if they got attacked, the retaliation methods were just harsh and arbitrary. They wouldn't try and find out who they did. They would just march into a town, arrest some civilians, and most likely shoot them. Or drag off people in the middle of the night and execute them. So a bit like the Gestapo. Not, not quite like the Gestapo. Imagine a marauding mercenary band. That's what they were kind of like. Right. Because the other thing they did, which is odd to read about in the 21st century, well, in the 20th century, especially with regards to Britain, is they did go around sacking and burning small towns. Really? Really? Yep. They, I didn't write them down because there was too many of them to list, but they did, in on the 11th of December 1920, they sacked Cork. I thought that was a town you would have heard of. Yeah, yeah. I know uh-huh. Cork. Yeah. I've not been there, but I know of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah so they essentially were... Kind of like what the IRA were in the in the troubles at the height of the troubles, just bombings, kidnappings, murderings, and they were just a horrible, horrible force. They finally reeled in after they were realised that a the war was going to be lost, and that they were doing a lot more harm than good because they were turning everybody against. Yeah, they were not doing anything to quell resistance. They were just going around blindly murdering innocent people, which then. Which would then spur more on people join the British sentiment. Yeah. It was a terrible, terrible policy idea, which backfired massively. 
So that was all churchy, was it? Churchill was the mastermind behind their organisation. Like I'll, I'll point out he did not sort of manage Order. their organisation, yeah. but he was the creator of their organisation. So he, he let it get out of hand. Yeah, so that's... And also, implementing something like that with no oversight. No, no like, leaders that you can go, you, what are you doing? Right, no, the story of the 1926 general strike. And just before we get into it, if it wasn't for the Second World War, I think Winston Churchill would be remembered far more like Thatcher because of this. Because this was an attack on the working class more than anything else. Oh, well, though, we'll point out he wasn't the Prime Minister at the time, so maybe not, but he was certainly one of the, the key figures in what is to come. Right, so it kind of starts in 1925, where the mine owners of Britain, in order to try and deal with falling prices for British coal, they decided to cut wages was their answer to their falling profits. Right. The So this is the mining companies? Yes, this was the, the mine owners. The TUC protested. TUC? It was known as the Trade Union Congress. The TUC protested over this, of course, because their union members are just being threatened with having their wages cut. But... The Conservative government at the time decided to, instead they they said they would subsidise the wages of the workers. So it's like, right, mine owners, you don't have to pay them as much, but we will pick that up. And they said they'd do that for nine months. But the thing that the mine owners then said on top of that is is they said that your pay would be cut by 25%, regardless, even after the nine months is over. And if you complain, you are fired. It's just like, if you don't like it, you can get out! <laughs> um, and so, backed into a bit of a wall by these ridiculous demands, the, the, the miners' unions, being backed by the TUC, were like, right, we're going to have to do something here. We and are being threatened. We're being threatened, and we're going to have to try and take extreme action. <laughs> and so in May so in May of 1926 they kind of announced a plan for a general strike so they were calling for every single union that was under their banner to go on strike in support of the miners unless wages were actually increased and days shortened Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin apparently was willing to negotiate with them. But his cabinet, or at least a large part by a portion of his cabinet, namely Winston Churchill, or they were, uh, the large faction that opposed this were led by Winston Churchill, who was at this time Chancellor of the Exchequer, were not interested at all, and they threatened to resign if Stanley Baldwin went ahead with his negotiations. Yeah, open dialogue. Yeah. So the negotiations broke down, and the TUC was forced to call a general strike. Unfortunately, the this is kind of what the hard-right conservatives in the government had been wanting all along, because they hated the trade unions and they wanted to crush them. And so they had prepared well in advance 
for this eventuality. They had already... So Winstead had... He, he wanted this. Yeah, it seems very, very, very likely. And uh, what I found quite fun about this was you can read a newspaper from 1926. And I think it's the... I can't remember what newspaper it is, actually. I think it might have been The Guardian, but no, not The Guardian. They're too new. The newspaper was named The New Statesman. But yes, you can read a newspaper article from 1926 and the the, the writer is just saying how he's talking about the strike and how it was just a conservative uh, stitch-up, basically. Right, okay. And how the... Sandy Baldwin was like, all right, okay, I kind of... I'm willing to do this, but the rest of his cabinet were like, nah, nah, we we want this. We we can deal with this. And so, yeah, the, the strike has happened. The strike happened. The miners went on strike. The dock workers went on strike. The milkmen went on strike. But like I say, Winston Churchill prepared for this. He called in the army to take over lots of jobs that already kind of whipped up opposition to it. So there was a lot of volunteers to take over the jobs of like rubbish collection and things like that, things that would be affected by the strike. And so basically, the unfortunately, the, the miners, you know, the, the general strike in general, was it never had, had a chance. It never really had a chance to, to work. Because there was already there people to, to pick up yeah, the was Yeah, it was, it was, we're going up against too much opposition. What you have to remember is unions don't actually want a strike. It's their last resort. Because yeah. after a strike, they've got nothing else to bargain with. And calling a general strike is the nuclear option for the TUC, because after that, they really have nothing else to bargain with. So it's either they have just to wait out the very rich, wealthy mine owners whilst their workers starve. Yeah. Which they can do if they have the public on their side, because then they can get support from them. But if they don't, those miners' families are just going to starve. And so, unfortunately, in November, the, the, the strike was ended. So that was when the miners finally tended to return to work. Lots of other sectors returned to work before that. But by November, the strike was effectively over. And heartbreakingly, the miners not only had to go back to work, but they had to go to work with lower wages, but longer days. They totally got the fucking, uh, the raw end of the stick. Ugh. And did they still get the subsidy from the gov- government? Or was that over? No, that was over now. Ugh. And... Credit to Stanley Baldwin, though, he did pass a law, and this was called for. What he did say was, he made it, he did make it illegal for mine owners to punish the miners that had went on strike. Right, okay. He was kind of the sympathetic politician in all of this, but just a bit unwill, unable to control his rabid anti-union, anti-communist cabinet. Yeah. Because I should point out at the time, unions were seen as the... the the festering harbingers of communism and socialism. But really, they are just the only voice of the working classes. Yeah. Um, and The, the other only thing way did, the working class has any power. And the other thing they did to twist the knife was they passed a law called the Trade Disputes and Trade Unions Act 1927, which basically really, really hit union funding to the Labour Party. And they also made it illegal for sympathetic strikes to take place. So, so like so if another industry, industry went if another strike. industry yeah if another industry if another industry decided to go on strike in support of coal miners that's an illegal strike and you can't do it but really that's the only way a strike can fully work if you've got pub, like exactly. if everything everyone goes on strike because like solidarity as long as you've got public support then it'll yeah. work and finally the other parts of this bill was 
It made mass picketing illegal. And it also, oddly, made it illegal for civil service unions to affiliate with the TUC. So they didn't want any part of the government being joined with the TUC. And that was the, the sad end to the, the general strike of 1926. So when, when did the miners get a better deal? They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't. After that, you had, well, you had the Depression. And then Britain was really poor for ages after that. And what you have to remember is the reason why the British coal industry was failing is just because other countries were producing cheaper coal. They right. could slash their wages as much as they want, but they were never... This, the, the British coal industry was on the decline for the entirety of the 20th century because other countries were starting to become big producers of coal. And the last thing I'll say, though, which Churchill because had... we're such a small country... Well, partly, well, it's just like anything. It's like any, it's why Britain doesn't produce anything anymore because it can be produced cheaper. Now, now, nowadays, it's produced cheaper in China for much, where the, where the workers work for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's just because. Who were the countries like back then? Germany was, surprisingly, Germany, despite how, how poor the Weimar Republic was at this time, uh, Germany was starting to become quite a big competitor. And another thing that Churchill was responsible for, which hammered British exports. I won't lie, this was something I was intending on researching more, but I did forget. Was in 1925, Churchill put, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, put Britain back on the gold standard, which basically means we tie the value of the pound to how much gold we've got, which has a knock-on effect of making the pound very, very valuable. Makes it a very, very strong pound. But that just means that a weaker, a weaker currency doesn't want to buy Deal. your products because yeah. they'll have to pay a lot more. Yeah. yeah. And that had a massive effect across the board on British How industry exports. How long it would have been off the gold standard? We had to fall off the gold standard, I believe, during the First World War. Otherwise, we would have bankrupted ourselves. Right. Or, not, or just depleted all of Britain's gold reserves in the first few months of the war. So, um, yeah, actually, look that up, yeah. The UK came back onto the gold standard in 1925 and left in 1931. The other thing that Churchill had uh, ordered during this was he had given permission for the army to be incredibly brutal in putting down the strikes. He had kind of just said, you, you've got free reign to deal with strikers how you wish. And I think there was a good few uh, sort of battles. I think there was one, a, big, a very big one in Glasgow. Right. Um where there was a few shots fired by the army into strikers. But yeah, basically because of Churchill determined to crush the unions, he orchestrated a strike they couldn't win, and which he had very well prepared for, and crushed the trade unions. Convincingly the, crushed them. Convincingly crushed them for a good few years. Although Labour would get into power, if you remember from the Labour episode, uh, or just in the next general election, but that is just because largely the entire country went to shit by that point. Yeah. Got you. And that is the end of the general strike. <laughs> <laughs> We're not laughing at that, by the way. Just, he keeps tossing his, um, tossing his notes over his shoulder. Right, no. This one might be a little bit more lighthearted. Probably not, though, because it's all about military blunders. Ooh, we all like a military blunder. <laughs> and we'll start with the war which perhaps had the most military blunders of any war in history the first world war 
1914, uh, Winston Churchill was Britain's Lord of Admiralty. Basically, he was head the political head of the Navy. And it was his grand idea, some uh, thought up in 1914, and finally enacted in on the 17th of February, 1915, to attack the Dardanelles coast of the Ottoman Empire. And this led Sorry, to... Sorry, what's, what's, what's Dardanelles? It's just the coastline. All the Dardanelles are a huge oh. island. The Ottoman actually. Empire was oh, where, where Turkey is. I know what Ottoman Empire is. I just thought Dardanelles might have been a... The Dardanelles. The Dardanelles. I thought coast. maybe like a, oh, a no. group of. It's, it's, I think it's a, actually a group of islands, but there's a stretch of coastline which is typically called the Dardanelles coast. The most famous battle of this campaign, which lasted until January of 1916, was the Battle of Gallipoli, which you might have heard I've of. I've heard of that one, yes. And the Battle of Gallipoli was a complete disaster. It did, achieved absolutely nothing apart from 250,000 dead or wounded French, British, Australian, New Zealand and other Imperial troops on the Allied side and another 250,000 dead or wounded Turks on the Ottoman side. Even Stevens. And this battle, as I said, achieved there was nothing. no sort of military there was no, gain. There was no gains. We landed on a beach. We tried to invade Turkey. For eight months, we fought on that beach. We left the beach. That was the entire... For eight months? For eight months. That The Battle of Gallipoli lasted eight months, I believe. The entire campaign lasted a bit longer. Jesus. But it was a complete cock-up. It was such a bad cock-up that even during World War One, people could see how much of a cock-up this was going to be before the attack was launched. Possibly the worst part of this story was... The head of the Royal Navy, Admiral John Fisher, had said to Churchill before this, this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't do this. But Churchill, The head of the Royal Navy? Sorry, do, do you not say that? Winston so Churchill Winston Churchill's the, role? Winston was... Churchill is the political. He is the part of the cabinet and ah, he okay. oversees the Navy. So he is their political master. They you know, serve the government, so they have to do what the government says, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so Admiral John Fisher had told him it was a really, really bad idea. But Winston Churchill was always convinced that the Ottoman Empire was the weak link in the Axis powers of World War One. Yeah. They weren't. I mean, they kind of were, but the Austrians were definitely the weak link. The Austro-Hungarian. Austro-Hungarian. Oh, I love those guys. Terrible time in World War One. Uh, yes, yeah, so it was a complete, complete disaster, and it was such a complete disaster that Churchill was stripped of his title of Lord of the Admiralty, and no longer allowed any involvement in any wartime planning for the rest of the war. Really? He was booted out because it went fucking terribly. God, so Winston Churchill, <coughs> before he got into power for World War Two, had at least the deaths of Already, half a million men on his conscience. One thing I should point out, casualties does not mean yeah, was yeah. dead and wounded. But yes, definitely tens of thousands of deaths, hundreds of thousands of maimed men, and one complete failure of a military campaign under his belt. I remember when you ever watched any documentary on World War Two if you studied history at GCSE level, which I think a lot of people did. Whenever Winston Churchill was in, introduced, it would always be as a disgraced 
ex-politician. Not ex-politician. ex-politician. They would always call him a disgraced. Winston Churchill came into the picture as a disgraced politician and strove for it when World War II. Yeah. Um, that's for a variety of reasons, largely because of this, but also he fell out of political favour in the 1930s and he calls that his wilderness years up until becoming... Calls that his what? Prime, wilderness The wilderness years. years. Because he was out. But yeah, because he was out of political favour. But... So yeah, that's that's obviously his last involvement in World War One. So that's the end of Churchill's military blunders, part one. <laughs> now we move on to World War Two, which is often regarded as Winston Churchill's finest, finest hour. I'll start. I'll start chronologically. They're not written down chronologically on my page, but I'll try. So the first big blunder he committed in World War Two, just under two months after becoming prime minister in May of nineteen forty. On the 3rd of July, 1940, he ordered that a French fleet, the French Mediterranean fleet, stationed at Mers el Kabir on the coast of Algeria, be sunk by the Royal Navy. Yes, this was a, a horrible thing, wasn't it? It really, really was. Um, it was all, all came back to the fact that just a few days earlier, a few weeks earlier, France had finally formally surrendered and Britain was very concerned about the French Navy, which was not a bad Navy, being handed over to the Germans. And so Churchill ordered, as I said, that the French Navy should be sunk if they weren't willing to sail back to Britain. Yeah, they approached the French and said, will you sail back with us? And the French Admiral, quite understandably, was like, well, no, I am loyal to France. I will not abandon my government and go sail away sail away with you. And so you're like, right, you've got an ultimatum. Either sail away with us or we will attack you. And he said, I won't, but what I will promise you is I won't let my boats fall into the hands of the Germans. And we thought, no, that's not good enough. And so on the 3rd of July, we attacked the fleet. Sunk a lot of it, killed over 1,000 Frenchmen. So there were people still on the ships? Yeah, there was, the fleet was still manned. It was just in port. We said, and we were like, nah, with this, we can't risk it. Let's attack them. And yes, yeah, so we sank the fleet. Oh my God. And one thing I should point out is that same admiral, or the, the head of the uh, French Navy, in, I believe, 1943 and 1944, when the Germans did try and seize the French Navy, he scuttled it. sunk all of the French fleet. So he was true to his word when he said, I won't let it fall into the hands of the Germans. He just said, I'm not letting another government use it. I won't let Germany's government, government use it either. Yeah. But so that's he, quite... He that's, had honour. He, yeah. he, he lived up to... As horrible as that decision is, though, that one is quite understandable, I think. Well, I was thinking that there. I mean, like, if you're in a massive war and they've got this If, huge... if you're really worried... That yeah. Nazis will get hold of lots get of warships. Of more ships to use against you. Because at that point. And you say to them, look, come on, lads. So that one, I think that one's still a bit of a blunder, but it could be chalked down to a tough military decision. Yeah. And another thing I should point out is as he's the Prime Minister, and this is more of an allied effort, a lot of these decisions might have been Churchill's original idea, but they. Unlike in World War One, where he overruled the military, mm-hmm. a lot of these were signed off on by the military. So it's not just just Churchill's yeah, fault. it wasn't a, a solo decision. Not entirely a, a solo decision. <laughs> right, no blunder number two. This one, once again, maybe maybe more or less understandable. 
But it was a bit of a daft move. One, which another hard military decision which he should have should have went the other way on. And that was when he ordered troops to be sent from Africa to go and help Greece. And this is where the horrible Crete campaign also comes in. And the problem of this was there was no there was no sort of saving Greece. It was a it was a daft, daft move. And this was in uh, April and June of 1943, or April to June. So it was just a waste of men. They were just sent from where they were doing a lot of use in Africa fighting the Italians to where they were being completely useless in Greece. So that was that was a that was a big problem. So the Germans had taken Greece, hadn't they? Well, originally the Italians invaded it because the Italians were the most useless army of the Second World War. <laughs> they fucked up, of course. I even know that. Even we were beating the Italians didn't in use, Africa. Didn't in some of them try and use swords? A lot of the a lot of the time you hear that people use swords in the Second World War, usually myths. Really, might be one or two occasions. You often hear the Polish used swords against tanks. It's just a myth. <laughs> they, I really like the idea of a Polish soldier beating a tank with a sword. <laughs> <laughs> it is true that a lot of armies did send. Well, actually, the one army that did use sword cavalry was the Soviet Union, because they right. used everyone they could. But yeah, the, the idea that the Polish sent swordsmen to stop tanks. No, oh, I asked about the Italians. Yeah, but I'm just saying the one that you most commonly hear about. Oh, right. But also the Italians, no, it seems very unlikely that Italians would have used swords. They did like to use Even rifles the from the late 19th century, though. Although the Italians were useless, so maybe they did use swords. What about in the desert, when they were fighting against the oh, desert people who the used desert whips? People. <laughs> who used whips in during the Second World War? They were fighting largely against us, but they did bungle an invasion of Ethiopia just before the war. Mm-hmm. And how can you bungle an, ev- an invasion of Ethiopia by using swords? By using spears swords, maybe. because you hold a sword and you throw a spear. <laughs> uh, right now, so yeah, basically, one all I have to say about that is from the Italians trying to invade Greece, and then the Germans invaded Greece, and the Germans were Greece very, very, very quickly. Competent fighting force. It it was just a daft idea. It it was it was a something that should have just been thought. We are technically allied with Greece, but we can't help them. They're too far away. We're too, they're too far away, and these men could be much better used elsewhere, like fighting the Italians in Africa and then later the Africa Corps, the Germans. So problem number two. So bungle number three. But <laughs> well, yeah, the last one I said was bungle number two. That was bungle number two. So bungle number three. This also happened in 1941. This happened in December. And it was Churchill's idea to send both the HMS Repulse and the HMS Prince of Wales. HMS Repulse. Repulse and the Prince of Wales. So Repulse was a heavy battle cruiser. And the Prince of Wales was a battleship. It was a capital ship. Both of them were capital ships. Were they? Yeah, both of them capital ships. Both of them pride and joys of the British Navy. The Prince of Wales especially was the most modern battleship in the British Navy. What does capital ship mean? Capital ship means your... Your flagship. Your flagships, your big ones. Your ones that in the past were sent round to intimidate small spear-wielding tribes into submission. Right-o. So his idea was to send these two ships to Singapore. And ironically, a little... Twist of, not twist of fate, but a little callback to history. Once again, he was advised against doing this by the Admiralty. Because they were like, 
catwalships are big and mean, but they're not invincible. And Churchill was kind of the opinion that they were. They are invincible. And so he sent these two ships to Singapore, where they were both sunk on the 10th of December 1941 by Japanese planes. So, and Churchill was shocked by this. I think he described in his diary as one of the worst pieces of news he heard during the war. And it was a bit of a shock the first time capital ships had been sunk by planes, which would happen a lot during the war, but this was yeah. at the, the first time when people were like, well, a plane can't sink a ship, a plane's tiny little but tiny little planes thing. carrying torpedoes. torpedoes and bombs. Uh, so his mind thinks, well, his my mind, race of people are better than this race much, of people, and, and my boats are better than what they've this got, also so I can't to, lose here. It's also, oh, sorry. So it basically shows like he genuinely believed these things about race and well, his beliefs of the quite, British Navy. Yeah, quite probably, especially about the Navy and certainly about British superiority, yeah. British imperial superiority. Wouldn't have thought that the Japanese could have posed that much threat, even though by this point they had overrun a lot of uh, Southeastern Asia that was previously controlled by Britain. Did kamikaze planes come up in World Not War Two? till the they end did, of the but, war. Yeah, very, it very end. end of when the, the Japanese had no more bombs. Well, it wasn't even that they had more bombs, it was when they had no more good pilots. Oh, right, okay. Although some of them were aces, some of them some did of the races did the first kamikaze pilot happen by accident? No, unfortunately not. Pilot. Are the kamikaze planes the first first example of like a suicide bomber? Not really. There was examples of... All, a lot of it comes from the Second World War, as you had suicide examples of suicide bombing done by the Japanese army, Japanese ground forces, and suicide by the Soviets. sword someone, could you? Like that wouldn't work. Suicide sword someone. You, know oh, I mean? like, stab you, you couldn't just like you know <laughs> before a bombing, you couldn't that just run Yoshi somewhere. and stab you, stab you through yourself into the person behind you. Suicide sword. Uh, but no, no, you can't really. I mean, you could do a suicide charge, which is kind of similar. Just going and knowing you Just will go die. Just flying in knowing you're Knowing gonna... you will die, but trying to take as many people with you. I suppose that's that's all what it goes back to. Yeah. It's just that now bombs are far better at taking a lot of people with you than hacking at people yeah, or yeah. even trying to shoot at people. So yes, uh, there was no kamikaze attacks on these two ships. They were just sunk by conventional bombing and torpedoing. But yeah, another, just a massive, a massive balls up. But How this many one, men went down with the ships? About one and a half thousand, I think. Some of them were rescued. But yeah, just once again, that was another blunder that could be directly blamed on Churchill because he had the most, it was his grand plan, send them over there. Yeah. Right, fourth blunder. This one kind of isn't so much his fault. This is another one that was more of a a committee, decision by committee. And a lot of people, it's probably the most controversial because a lot of people have said it was just a deliberate waste of lives. Some people said it was a horrible, cold clinical test. And other people said it was just a failed commando raid. And that was the, the raid on Dieppe, a, a, a French port in 1942, where basically it was a small-scale operation. This is what the conventional history is, to see the viability of a seaborne invasion of France. Right. That's okay. kind of what the conventional history of it is. They were just trying to see whether it could be done. But they decided to do this by sending over 5,000 men, most of whom were Canadian. And out of these 5,000 men, 3,000 of them were either killed or captured. It was another complete disaster. They landed on a little shingly beach, really long. They were got 
Really loud if it was shingle. Yeah, the tanks couldn't even move on shingle. That's one of the important things to discover. Tanks can't move on shingle. Because uh, they just push. Because the they, just, they just dig in. Yeah, they just go it up. And they also lost over 100 planes uh, during this. Were they like the support planes? 100 Spitfires trying to protect the landing craft and bombers. To, o- to only 48 German planes. And very, very few German casualties. It was a complete disaster. But once again, some people have said it was a test and it convinced them. It, a lot of people said if it wasn't for this, D-Day couldn't have happened because this taught them a lot of valuable lessons. I would say that's probably retrospective history. Yeah. Going, well, it was bad, but you know, but we learned a lot. But it wasn't intended to go so badly. And yeah. But once again, that Surely one... Surely they could have tested a tank on a shingle beach in England. <laughs> Good on Willie Bay, that beach is horribly stony. Uh, yeah, just, just any... any <laughs> Fucking land on Brighton Beach, it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> your passport uh, wait, where, Yeah, France. where's your passport? That is a story that could have been said on this. So, that was the raid on Dieppe. A complete failure, which some people have said is justified. I don't think it really was. I think it was just a, a mission gone very, very wrong. 3,000 men. 3,000 men lost. gone in the blink of an Ouch. eye. And using the poor Canadians as well. A lot of the Canadians are a bit bitter about it because they were used as the guinea pigs. A thousand British men went over as well, but 4,000 Canadians to 1,000 British. Yeah. Uh. Sam, did Winston Churchill have any redeeming qualities? <laughs> well, he, d- he did have a few. He was a, a charismatic man. A man that let Britain view the world who are. <laughs> Uh, but no, he was actually quite a good wartime leader. He gave some stirring speeches. He gave some stirring speeches, kept morale up. Was a good figurehead. We'll battle them on the beaches and stroke their golden hair. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was one of his favourite famous quotes. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, he, he said he was a drip. He wasn't a stupid man. Might have been callous at times, but did he invent sticking your fingers up with people? No, he did not. Because remember that time? Did we in the podcast talk about archers were meant to be the ones who? Yeah, I don't know if that's true though. I think that is just a. I think that's a, like an urban, it's an urban, urban, urban myth. Yeah. Well, that about wraps up uh, Churchy, doesn't it? I think it does. Little Churchill. Uh, a few years ago, my nana gave me a little Toby jug of Winston Churchill. I remember that. I yeah. remember that. Do you still have it? Still got it. Do you drink out of it? N- no, it's not. A, it's not a full size one. It's not like a big miniature. Box. It's his full body, and he's sitting Ooh. on a little chair. What I should do what after his atrocities is smash it a bit. <laughs> but, you know me, Nan, I gave us it. It's going to stay on my bookshelf. Just just, just stay in there. Yeah, that's fine. I can cope with that. Uh, so, yeah, that about wraps that up. Yeah, so I got a taxi the other day. And uh, and I started talking to the taxi driver. A nice, no normal taxi driver type talk. A bit uncomfortable, but you, you do it. Uh, I think I might have... I might have been out the night before. I, I don't know, but um, he ended up talking about <laughs> he ended up talking about lager, and he was ju- he just went, "I love lager," and I was like, oh, I, 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 "I like lager too, man. It's nice." And he went, "No, no, 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 no. You might like lager, but I love lager. I love the way it tastes. I love the way it smells. I love the way it looks. I love the way the bubble goes down the side of the glass and it makes you want more." I love the froth. <laughs> I love drinking it with me mates. I love drinking it with me wife. I love drinking it on my own. I love... <laughs> <laughs> and 
Does he love drinking it in cans? I love drinking it from a can. I love drinking it from a glass. I love... It's just this huge list of ways he loves to drink lager. Uh, I can't remember how it ended. It was something like, if I could drink lager all the time, I would. But obviously, I'm a taxi driver. (laughs) (laughs) What was that other interesting taxi journey you had? Where... uh, you were leaning over the gear stick. It's classified information. <laughs> <laughs> Is that one classified? Well, no, it's not. It's great. I love it. Uh, no, it's classified. <laughs> <laughs> gracious me uh, well I think that about wraps up this week's episode mm-hmm. thereabouts anyway so I hope you enjoyed hearing about Winston Churchill and his uh, escapades <laughs> <laughs> his jollies so uh, that's a good night from me goodbye goodbye